Fellas, I have some excellent news. I like news. That is excellent. I did some some incognito work over the, the past week that I think both of y'all will be excited to hear. You see, I know that we said that uh, we weren't going to turn this this podcast into a den of thieves, as, as Christ Jesus would say. But you know what? Sometimes you just got to take matters in your own hands. So I, I went behind y'all's backs, and I got ourselves a sponsor. Oh, interesting. That's right. We are the one and only Christian Podcast. Endorsed by Jesus Christ himself. Thank you for listening to Cross Training, where we look at faith and practice through a biblical lens. That's right. That's right. We're not working for we're not working for earthly glory. We're not looking for, for earthly money. We're looking hey, for that for that hey. kingdom, that the heavenly hey. stuff. That's right. That's right. Hey. That's right. We are this podcast is brought to you by our Lord and Savior, Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ. <laughs> I am Matthew Thompson. And just take my word for it, there's two other dudes in this. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You caught me so off guard with that. Uh, me too. I was like, whoa, what in the world's going on? No, but today we're going over John chapter 15, continuing our... We our, didn't really do our intro John. yet. Did, well, I, I did. He I said did. look at faith but and practice say, through a biblical lens. Huh? I, I said we're looking did at he? faith and yeah, practice. He went yeah, the while, while you were doing your, your mouth your air horn. Yeah. yeah. It worked out. We're all good. <laughs> we're all good. A loud baseball. I am not in the right mindset for this. Let's go, boys. Wherever, right. <laughs> wherever three or more are gathered, come on. Let's go. Let's we go. We got about two and a half right now. <laughs> John, John chapter 15. We're going to be talking about vines. We're talking about vine dressers. We're talking about pruning. We're talking about throwing in a fire. We like fires. Well, Only certain fires, though. Yeah, certain fires. <laughs> certain fires, got to clarify. I mean, we are lit, right? You know? We are very lit. Ah, okay, all right. Well, I'll get to the scripture. <laughs> but I am known as the cringy dad, so just, just give it, just give it to me, you know. I will not. Hey, wait, that. hold on. I got a joke for you, though. I got a joke for you. Hmm. So, a priest, a minister, and a rabbit walk into a blood bank. The rabbit looks to them and says, "I think I'm a typo." Ah, okay, <laughs> okay. I'll give that to you. Okay. So now let, let's get into EMT pond right there. Let's get into a spiritual headspace here. So one one thing that that I would like to point out about John chapter fifteen that that uh, stuck out to me, and this is like the main thing that stuck out to me. Uh, th- this chapter as a whole, we're talking almost exclusively about like agriculture. Like f- oh, for the I most part. Oh, I didn't pay attention to that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a very agriculturally okay. based chapter, and that's uh, we've kind of touched on this in the past that the way Jesus talks. I mean, he talks the way he does for a reason, obviously. Yeah. And we've gone over how the Bible wasn't written um, to us, but it was written for us. Like, there are lots of little nuances and plays on words that not only do we miss because, well, we're reading English translations. We're not reading the original text word for word. We literally can't unless you want to go and learn Hebrew or Greek, which, I mean, hey, if you want to do that, then I'm not a first it. century Jew that lives in Judea that exactly. lives off the land. Exactly. But even with us uh, reading English translations, there are still like little things that would really only make sense to the people that Jesus is talking to or the people that uh, the scriptures are about in that given time. So when Jesus is talking to the people in his time, he, he's speaking mainly to, to poor individuals. Uh, within that area, that the only way that you can really survive is by growing your own food. Like you're, you don't really have the money to go out to market and buy your meals. And if you do, it's something you save up for. Like what you grow and what you toil for on your in your own backyard really is what you survive off of for the most part. Uh, so when Jesus is talking agriculture, like ears are going to perk up. So that's that's one thing that kind of spoke out to me when I was uh, 
reading through this chapter, like all the I am the true vine and all that uh, messaging, like you know that hits home for them. And I think mm-hmm. it's easy for us to forget that uh, when we're reading um, the, those those wonderful red letters in Scripture. It's easy to forget because we don't kind of stuff. know all the nitty gritty details about vines and and shepherds and fields yeah. and harvest. And in a way, like that's a blessing. It's cool that like as a human race, at least us, because I mean, obviously, this still goes on in other parts of the world. Like mm-hmm. we, we don't have that struggle. Uh, so while there is that upside of we're not struggling for our food every day, we also miss out on some of these like plays on words and some of the ways that Jesus speaks. Like that, that's a way that we need to identify with um, those that are poorer. Well, ladies and gentlemen, today we will actually try to break down some of these agricultural things to you because we all had to do some research on this. Because to be honest. I'm not an agricultural dude. Yeah, I don't have a green thumb. Yeah. And that's another stereotype uh, that exists like within the South because I mean, we're, we're, we're all Southern boys, even though I don't like to admit it. Um, so there is that stereotype of people from other parts of America or other parts of the world that we're all just sitting here on our tractors, like raising our farms. And yeah, I live next to a farm, but I don't know how to grow anything. Goodness. <laughs> I mean, that's something that goes straight over my head. Yeah. So again, like all this, this agricultural stuff, I, I can appreciate it because... I mean, I know that that's what Jesus is talking about because he knows his audience would get that. But like me personally, it's something that doesn't like jump out at first glance. So that, there's my, my observation. But to get into the text, Mason, you've, you've told me, and I, th- I think you've just kind of told us in general, that you're, you're a pretty big fan of this chapter. It's, it ranks high up there on the list of Mason's favorite chapters in the Bible overall. Definitely. Yeah, it's definitely, I would say probably 100% top 10, probably top 5. For sure, chapters. Well, in that case, how about you kick us off with uh, verses 1 through 5, and we can start a discussion. Yep. So verse 1 starts, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that, that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Tell me about them vines, Mason. So, speaking of just a little bit of agriculture part, obviously, if you just want to think of this logically, a branch can do nothing without the vine because a branch can't survive on its own while the, the vine can survive for the most part without its branches because it can just keep growing up and up and you know as a vine does but what here jesus really how i always took this from different sermons and different things is jesus saying you're not going to be able to do this on your own you're going to need somebody to rely on to give you a source you know that's what the vine is for the branch the vine is a source you know a source of water a source of nutrients the branch, the branch gets everything from the vine, and so Jesus is kind of saying, "You need what I can give you mm-hmm. to continue on, and to do the things that well I'm asking you to do to bear fruit," as it says in you know verses like two and three. So yeah, I, I totally agree with you with the vine. That is a sense of uh, a nourishment, like a sustaining something that is kind of constantly there. And without the vine, guess what? Things die. You know the branches die, and there is no fruit to partake of that of the of that vine. Yeah, because if the branch dies, yeah, the vine's going to survive. Yeah, but if the vine dies, the branch dies. Yeah, 
So with this statement that Jesus makes in verse 1, it says, I am the vine. I am the true vine. And I think that's important to say. He makes another I am statement. I was about to say another I am. You know, another I am. So throughout Scripture, you see vine is, is it's a familiar imagery given to the people of Israel. And so it's nothing when he's talking to the disciples. It's nothing new that they haven't heard before. And so one of the things I want to point out, there's a little bit of symbolism behind trees. Okay. You know how like on the Titanic, there was like a pineapple on the thing. And you know, pineapples are a symbolism of peace. I guess you didn't know this. I did not. Okay. Well, pineapple is a symbol of peace, but yeah, that's not. We're talking like the actual Titanic or the movie Titanic. Yes. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> they, they tried to accurately, they, they accurately portrayed the Titanic, but okay. yeah, yeah. A pineapple was on like the, st- the staircase, you know, where Leonard, Leonardo Oh, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, I know what you're talking about, okay. yeah. Well, a pineapple is a symbol of peace in, I guess, the, the tropical regions, you know, they would bring a pineapple, the aboriginals or whatever, so it's like a peace offering. But anyways, we're not talking about that, we're not talking about pineapples, we're talking about uh, Israel sim- symbology here. So, an olive tree... That would represent a religious privilege. A fig tree represents a national privilege. And the grapevine, which we're going to talk about here, is a spiritual privilege. And it is also recognized as a symbol for, hint, hint, the Messiah. So this Messiah, the vine branch, is portrayed throughout the Old Testament as well. So God has often used this for his people. In Psalm chapter 80, Verse 8 and 9, uh, David says, You have brought up a vine out of Egypt. You have cast out the nations and planted it. You had have prepared room for it and caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. And oftentimes, to be honest, when one outweighs the other, but sometimes the vine was geared towards a negative connotation versus a positive. In Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 21, Yet I have planted you a noble vine. A seed of highest quality. How then have you turned away from me into a degenerate foreign vine? So the vine is a positive promise for the people of sustaining life. Just like you were talking about. That's And that's what the Messiah is has promised to do. But just like the people of Israel, we've made comments before, is that they like to turn and do their own things. And basically not do as the vine has promised. And guess what? A lot of it comes with negative connotation because they don't want to take care of that. They don't want to follow what the vine is actually providing. Tanner, if you were a fruit, you'd be a fine apple. No, I'd be a, oh, oh. (laughs) Anyway, I I got the dad jokes too. Never will be a dad, but I got the, I got the dad jokes. Uh, One, one note that you had that, that I like quite a bit, um, you had an observation on the phrase taken away in verse two. Um, yes. The original Greek verb for that uh, being better translated, like if we translate it in modern times, uh, it would be translated to like lift up or trim clean. Yeah. And I'll just read directly from your notes because I thought they were really good here. It says, this idea is seen in ancient practice of vine dressing. When a grapevine is on the ground and not producing well, the vine dresser would lift it up a little higher to receive more sunlight and bear better fruit. Trim clean is not a destroying of the vine, but pruning, meaning to cleanse or to purify, not to destroy. And that that spoke out to me because that makes me think like there there is an element of mercy in yeah. that text. So read, I'm gonna read that verse real quick. So verse two is what he's talking about. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Yeah, and like just reading that at face value and not knowing about like these uh, Greek roots of that. Um, it just seems like it seems like when Jesus says just a few more verses down where he talks about like throwing the branch into the fire or whatever that like there's there's damnation there. Mm-hmm. But it seems that there is an element of mercy like 
in this initial verse two that like it's not just oh you're not creating fruit from me like okay we're gonna cast you away right now where there might be some more like opportunity for redemption like in the future like there's that mercy aspect there that um, I mean I I'd completely missed out on because I yeah. wasn't aware of this uh, Greek root. Well, this also goes back. I think this is also reminiscent to something that I think we've kind of at least witnessed in our our, our short lifespan with being in in the South. But I know there's a there's some churches out there that believe in repetitive regeneration. And what this uh, theology, and I want to say, put that in air quotes, because I think this is bad theology, is that you have to continually, every time that you sin, ask Jesus to come back into your heart. That regeneration, that's, that sin that is covered, you have to ask him back into your life. So like if I go down in a car and I, and I see that I'm about to die in a car accident and I use the Lord's name in vain, guess what? I'm damn there right then and there. I'm going to go to hell because I, I, that a split second, I use the Lord's name in vain. So repetitive regeneration is a very cheap grace to me. But to me here uh, in this verse, when it says taken away of more of like the vine dresser is actually trying to help the branch survive. You know, he wants it to survive the best that it can and let the vine and the branches to get the best nutrients that it can. So that it can produce the best fruit. Yeah, because that makes me think. Like if, um, and I, I don't. I'm gonna be honest. I don't know anything about vines. Well, so do I. Just, like, let's say in a hypothetical universe, like I'm, I'm trying to raise a little sapling tree. Like I plant a little, little sapling, and I want it to grow up into this great big tree. And let's say a branch of it is, or well, you know what? I don't even have to go hypothetical. There's actually a tree on my property right now that's got a single dead branch on it. <laughs> Like the rest, rest trees is fine, but one one branch is dead and it's like facing the road. So if it just falls, then I mean it could hit a car, which wouldn't be good. So we're you looking go into clean that up. Yeah, you're not gonna be in a good citizen. Yeah, that that wouldn't be good. So we're looking into getting that uh, branch taken care of, get it removed, so we don't have to deal with that potential lawsuit. That'd be a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, but like, does that mean that I don't want a branch to be there? Period. No, I'm I'm fine with a branch being there. I would just like it to not be dead and about to fall at any second. So when that branch gets cut off. I mean, to be fair, I don't really know how trees work, so I don't know if this would happen. But in theory, a new branch would appear where that currently dead one is, except it wouldn't be dead and about to fall at any second. So I'd be perfectly fine with it. So assuming that everything I just said right there is like agriculturally sound, like apply that to that logic. Like Jesus isn't uh, sitting here like cutting off branches to be like, screw this branch. I'm going to throw it in the fire and uh, away with you. I never want to see you again. No, there's, I would imagine that hope that this branch will come back anew and will bear fruit this time. So, yeah, yeah, I think I, I kind of spoke as I was thinking, but that that sounds right. I don't think that was heresy. It wasn't word vomit, so you're good. Okay, cool. Again, I want to read those again because I think they're very important. So, remain in me, Jesus says, and I in you. Just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless I remain on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. So there's a there's a there's a kind of cohabiting thing here. I'm the vine, and you are the branches. And the one who remains in me, and I in him, produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. Now, many illustrations are given for the relationship between the reliability between God and His people. A lot. You know, you got the sheep and the shepherd. You got you know the vine and the branches. Uh, but the vine, I think, is one of the most is one of those that show that we are dead without Christ. I think that's one that shows, like, even with, like, the lost lamb, you're lost, but yet, you know, you can come back. But yet, I think a vine is a good way to show, it's like, you know, you can be dead without him. But this picture, I think it emphasizes the need for constant connection, or we will wither away and die. I think the vine is a very good illustration that we need to be continually 
accessing some of the nutrients from the vine or we will not produce good fruit. Yeah, that scripture does make it very abundantly clear that like you can't rely on anything but the vine, that vine being Jesus, to to live. Like that's that's the power source. There is no alternative. And I mean that um, and I'm sure that that rang true in the heads of the people that he was speaking to. Like, you need to focus on me. Don't focus on um, this law worship that the Pharisees are doing. Don't don't think to yourself that these uh, earthly concepts are what are going to save you. It's only me. It's only Jesus. It's only the divine. I mean, that, and like I said, I'm sure that rang true to the people he was talking to, but that rings true today just as well. Uh, I mean, you have plenty of people that put all their faith in, like, their country, for instance. Like, nationalism is a pretty big thing these days. I mean, it always has been. Um, nations all have an element of pride and to an extent like that's fine I mean personally I'm, I'm thankful that I live in a country that we're able to do this right now that's pretty dope mm-hmm. for some areas that that's a lot more difficult or straight up illegal so I'm grateful for that but I'm not over here worshiping Uncle Sam every other Sunday like that's it's not how it works like my allegiance is to a kingdom not of this world first and any anything else is second if it even lands on the list at all I mean, you have people that sort of in the same vein will look to world leaders, uh, not just in America, but everywhere. Like people will look up to their their local representative if we want to go like real small time. But I mean, most people look at their world leaders as like someone that they want to be like or look up to a celebrity, look up to someone that they hear in their favorite podcast or in their favorite TV show or movie. Um, Like one person that comes to mind is The Rock. Like when I was a kid, like I looked up to him so much. Uh, he was a professional wrestler, and now he's like king of the entertainment world. And like I looked at him, I was like, man, I want, I want to be just like him. Be all, be all jacked up and be able to talk trash like him. Like I just, I looked up to him so much. And that's that's not someone you want to really grow up to be like. But even now with him being like a nice dude, why idolize that when you can idolize the real vine, Jesus? Like don't don't focus on these earthly things. That's that's a problem that still exists in this uh, modern day as well as it did back then. Because if that branch, the branch of the people, take a source from worldly things or anything else that's not of the true vine, they may get some nutrients from time to time, but yet it'll end up being unfruitful or withering up and not being useful for the kingdom of God. So so Jesus is just emphasizing, it's like, you know, I'm vital to survival, boys. Got to make it clear that that new law is super important because it is easy to forget and I know we bring it up quite a bit on this podcast. It is something that the church as a whole, I feel, forgets just kind of in mass. We forget that Jesus was indeed a heretic at his time. Like, he didn't get crucified for no reason. In their standards, in the Pharisees' Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, I'll point that out. Well, obviously. Uh, the Pharisees were able to, like, get people on their side because they were right from their point of view. Like, they're sitting here taking this old law and throwing it at Jesus and... I mean, obviously, Jesus is able to just swat it aside because he, he's the new law. Like, get out of my way, son. Like, it's time it's time to to spruce this place up a bit. But from the Pharisees' like greedy point of view, they do have the law to fall on. Like, they did have some legitimacy in their own eyes. And people that didn't know any better would be able to look at these Pharisees and be like, oh, yeah, those words that they're talking about, they are in that book. So these guys are right, correct? Jesus was a radical dude. He stepped on a lot of toes for a lot of good reasons. Like, he had a lot of mm-hmm. seemingly new ideas. And it's easy to forget that. So his... Um, this emphasis that people needed to rely on Jesus, like the value from that is that you need to stop relying on these people that have these words that they claim have power. Yeah. The words themselves don't have power, but I am the word. I have power. And that word that he gives, it gives evidence. There's evidence behind the truth of the, the good vine. 
Yeah. And I mean, it could be as simple as just viewing the miracles that Jesus did. Yeah. I mean, I think he said in the last chapter, like, if you believe because of the miracles, then okay. But it would also be really cool if you would just believe. What about today, though? We can't witness those miracles of Jesus. I mean, well, I, we're not we're not going to get on the topic topic of continuationism or cessationism, but let, what about today? How can we witness the fruits of Jesus today by the branches? Well, now we have the, the Holy Spirit. Okay. I mean, we do have in our own special way an advantage that people in Bible times didn't have. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, you look at the things that Jesus' disciples did uh, with the Holy Spirit. Now, are, are those things going to be one-to-one what we did? I mean, read the book of Acts if you want to get some insight on what I'm referring to here. Not necessarily. I, I don't think that, well, I, I guess that's a dangerous phrase to use. I feel like one could say <laughs> that we're not necessarily going to suddenly be able to speak in every language in the world. But you could also argue that nowadays in the age of information... We have Rosetta Stone. Yeah, I was about to say, like, it, it's easier but, than ever to learn a few other languages. I'm more referring to a more simplistic thing of what Paul says in Galatians 5. Is that the reason that I think people can see that we are in the vine, that we are accessing towards the true nutrients of Jesus himself, is by the good fruits of the Spirit. Does so anyone have the song going through their head right I, now? I have the song going, yeah. but I'm not going to sing it. I'm not going to be. I'm going to sing it. Oh, oh, the fruits of the spirit's not a coconut. Anyways, but the so in Galatians five, it makes mention that the fruits of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruits of the spirit, and these fruits are evidence. They people see if when people see this, this gives evidence towards Jesus himself of the true vine that he is who he says he is. So let's continue uh, with uh, 6 through 8. So verse 6, it says, If any does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch, and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and I will, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So, you know, here Jesus is talking about, you know, if you remain with me, like we talked about before, life will remain with you. Now, Jesus warned his disciples and us today, like Matthew said, it was it's not to us, but it is for us. That if we fail to abide with him, we would become useless and not bear any fruit like we talked about. And he has called us to be useful. That's what he's called. But what happens to that useless branch, the, uh, the only good thing about a useless branch, guess what? It's only good for kindling. It's only good for kindling. It's going to be cast away. Now, we can get on uh, different topics here, but this could either be on the topic of like a lukewarm Christian in Revelation where it talks about, you know, either you're a hot Christian or you're just a cold non-believer. If you're a lukewarm Christian, not producing much fruit, if you're, if you're, if you're raisins on that branch, sorry, to me, that sounds like a lukewarm Christian type of production there. And to me, guess what? Oh no, not to me, to Jesus himself that says it in Revelation, he's going to spit you out. Oh, Yeah. He spits fire even in Revelation. So, so even then you could see this as like, well, a warning to lukewarm Christians, like you better produce some fruit or like Christ is going to spit you out because you're useless. You're not going to create no wine with, with raisins. Another thing would be, let's say apostasy. What if that branch decides not to take part of that vine no more? And I know this is something that, you know, some, some areas of 
the church will say, well, apostasy doesn't really exist, that you cannot deny uh, the, the, the spirit. Like once you become saved, that guess what? You're always within that vine. I disagree. I think a vine or I think a branch can detach and wither away from the vine. By choice, but yet, guess what? I it, it's it's it, it can't be regrafted back in, and that's what apostasy is. If you walk away from the faith and and decide to deny God altogether, God will give you to a reprobate mind, and there's no engrafting back into that. And I like to go back to your first point about the fire, about how you said um, how a branch has kind of withered away and it's lost its purpose. People will cast it away. Now that's the that's the idea I had going into mm-hmm. this before, like, like we looked at any notes or anything. And that's the aspect and view that I always just been heard from sermons and been taught is that, you know, once a branch has lost its purpose and is withered away, you know, it is cast up and thrown into the fire. And a lot of people like to think of that fire as, you know, the lake of fire or hell or whatever you might say. So that's the one I've always talked about. The second thing I wanted to bring up, I had two little points I wanted to bring up. My second point is that uh, if you read at the end of verse seven, or I'll just read the whole verse again. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it shall be done for you. When we come, how we talked about last, was it last week? Last week. Yeah, last week about uh, people praying in Jesus' name and it will be done to you. Here we see a little bit of that again. Mm-hmm. But we got to remember, like from last week, you got to have the right mindset about this. You know, asking things in your name for your purpose or in God's name for his purpose and for his will. Because the vine dresser has one purpose, is to allow that vine and that branch to produce the best fruit, first, well, fruit and to grow. Yeah, the, the the vine wants to grow and grow more branches. Mm-hmm. Christ wants to grow His kingdom and bring more people to Him. You know, He loves and wants people to live. You know, have that eternal life. And so they, it's the same thing. What you ask in my name for, for the vine's will, Christ's will, mm-hmm. it's going to be done. You know, as long as you're not trying to do it for you. Oh, I want to my leaves to grow and I want all my branches. To, I want to be the biggest branch, Jesus. No, that's not the purpose of this. You know, the purpose isn't be, Oh, I want to be, you know, one of the TV preachers that everybody hears on Sunday mornings. You know, no, that's not my purpose as a preacher. You know, I'm, I'm not here to glorify myself and become America's next greatest evangelist. I, I really don't want that to be honest with you. <laughs> that's something as a preacher myself, I don't want because that puts too much pressure on me and my pride as it is already to kind of glorify myself when that's not the purpose of ministry. Mm-hmm. And I, you could go to another aspect too, is like the grapes aren't asking to be strawberries because that's the, what they are designed to do. You know, the branches aren't producing peaches or, or whatever. So it's like, it's, it's like saying like if a grape was like, Hey, vine dresser or Hey, Hey vine, can you produce, can you make sure that I, I, I produce like, some other fruit than what I'm, what you've made me out to be. So it's just like the same thing with 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 us three. You know, God's given me a gift uh, over some of y'all, and y'all have God has given you gift over over me. But yet I can't allow jealousy and resentment build up in a way. It's like I want what His fruit is. Our next chunk of scripture comes from verses nine through seventeen. We've got a few more to read in a row this time, uh, but it starts off saying, "As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you." Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. 
This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he might give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So just initial thoughts from that, uh, from me, is I will say that there's one specific thing that, that I've learned from this chapter that I would like to share. One one thing that I felt like I was reading for the first time, since we have to get me <laughs> saying that at least once every episode, it seems. Um, when Jesus says in verse 10, he says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. He's talking about a transaction there that I had never really read into. Because I just, I, I hear him saying, like, follow my commandments, uh, Father's commandments, okay, on to the next verse. Like, it never really rang true in my head, but this time I kind of read into it. And he's saying, if you keep my commandments, which he um, elaborates on just a few more verses down in verse 12. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. So he's saying in verse 10, you need to keep that one commandment, do, do that one thing. Or if we want to get, like, kind of technical in... Uh, I believe in the book of Matthew. I think you even have this in your notes, Tanner. Um, Matthew 22, where Jesus says, love God with all your heart, and in that same vein, love your neighbor as yourself. So we can, let's go ahead and say there's two commands there, just for the sake of the argument. Uh, Jesus is saying, follow, follow these two, these commandments, plural, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus is making that comparison. Like, if you follow my commandments, it's like how I'm following my Father's commandments. And keep in mind, when Jesus is referring to his Father's commandments, he's referring to 613 laws. So there is this active acknowledgement that there is this um, consolidation of all of those laws that we've established in past episodes are really tough to follow all at the same time. And it wasn't even so much a law system as it was God giving his people an opportunity to display their love for him through those laws. Uh, but he is, he's consolidating all that within these two commands to to love others as yourself and to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Like there, there's that transaction there. He's he's straight up spelling it out to these people. Hey, do this thing that I said, and that that's version 2.0 mm-hmm. of all this. Like that, this is what I'm here to do. I want to not necessarily make all this easier. Again, we've said this multiple episodes. I've said this at least I know multiple episodes already. Not making it easier, just making it simpler. Now you just have these two. I want you to focus on love. That that that's all you need. Just, just want you love, love me and love others. So when Jesus is basically when Jesus is saying this, it sounds more like a command, is it not? Oh yeah, one hundred percent. I mean, again, it's not something that's easy. He's not just like, okay, everybody, just, just love. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip along the sidewalk and be that, that pansy Jesus that you see in some pictures. I mean, let's not water this down. Like a lot of, a lot of people do see Jesus as being like a weakling. Like, oh, he's this mm-hmm. peace love, like has a wreath of flowers around his forehead. Oh goodness, no. Jesus is God, and to say Jesus is weak is to say that God is weak, and I don't think anyone in their right mind is going to say that. Jesus is giving a commandment that it's got teeth on it, because I mean there are consequences to not following His commands. Simple as that. Mm-hmm. So just, I want to dispel that as soon as I can. So what's the link between true love and obedience? Because because I think within our worldly standard we could say that obedience is kind of something that has a, an oppressor and oppressed connotation behind it. So what can be a link between obedience to true love? 
Well, I think that obedience will come naturally if love is involved, but it won't be seen as obedience. Mm-hmm. It's seen as something that you just desire to do. Like, for instance, if I'm sitting on the couch, watching some TV, and Demi, my wife, walks into the room and says, Hey, Matthew, will you do the dishes? Like, I'm not going to, like, go, oh, Can you give me, like, 30 minutes? No, I'm going to get up and be like, All right, okay, let's wash some dishes. Because, mm-hmm. for one, I'm going to benefit from wash dishes, too. So, I mean, it's not like she's just slaving me around. Because... It's almost like Jesus isn't going and just slaving us around. There's a mutual interest, even if we're not aware of it. Like, maybe I didn't know that there was a certain uh, pot or pan in that sink that Demi's going to use to to make a, a delicious meal that I will be very thankful for eating. But she's not saying that she wants me to wash the dishes so she can do that. She's like, hey, we wash the dishes because she has that trust that due to my love for her, I'm just going to be like, all right, yeah, okay, let's wash some dishes. Heck, I'm kind of mad that you had to tell me because I meant to wash the dishes before you asked me. That's the kind of love that Jesus wants. Jesus wants to be able to to say, "Hey, I want you to go over the go over to to this land over here and preach my name." And he wants your response to be either a very excited yes or a "Dagum it, Jesus! I wish you would have waited another day to say that because I was going to do that." Anyway. I'll bring. I'll just point up one thing to throw out all that scripture. It was a uh, one of my points in my very first sermons. One of the first sermons, I might have been the first one that I've done a couple of years ago, um, and it's the it's talking about Christ's love, and it starts in thirteen. It's thirteen through fifteen, so I'll read those three one more time, uh, just so everybody has a clear understanding of uh, what I'm trying to say. Greater ha- greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatsoever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know. What his master is doing, but I have called you friends for this thing that I have heard from my father that I have made known to you. So what does Jesus say in the first part? You know, the greatest thing you can do to show love is lay down your life for somebody. Like that, like Christ says, you know, the, you want to show love, like that is the greatest thing you can do to show love. Well, we go down to the next verse. You are my friends. But who does like who do you lay your life down for your friends? And Christ goes on to say, you know. I have called you my friends. What did Jesus do? He laid down his life for us. You know, the a couple of the uh, mind-blown moments that we've had on this podcast, I had one of these two years ago when I was reading this chapter. And so I think that might be why I have a such a passion for this chapter. I don't know, just because I had such a revealing moment to that. And I just had to go tell everybody else. Because, I mean, well, I mean, obviously we know that he died for it. I was about to say, were you doing your first chronological read through? Like, he's going to die, isn't he? (laughs) No, like we know he's going to die for us. But the fact that he says the greatest way you can show love is to die for your friends. You're my friends. He died for us. He showed us the most physical way that we can show love to people by doing it himself. Yeah. And that's such a contrast to like how people at that time were reviewing how Jesus was going to be like he that whole upside down kingdom thing um, rings true in that moment as well because a lot of people expected and or just desired for him to be this conqueror and here he is saying the greatest show of love which is what I want you to do first and foremost is to die for others like that there's got to be some people that like that just felt like a slap in the face Mm -hmm. that, that wanted that king conqueror Jesus that that on a great white horse with with uh, a big broadsword and a shield type conqueror Jesus that some people were expecting. When he's when he sitting over here saying, I want you all to love. And like, it's not just, again, it's not him skipping along the sidewalk going, come on, everyone just love each other. No, it's a command like, you will love others. 
Like, that is the kingdom that I'm raising here. And if mm-hmm. you don't want to be a part of that, then guess what? You're one of those branches that gets cast in the fire. Like, he's, again, it's got teeth to it. He's not just being a weakling here. Um, and then to take it even further, he's saying, and if you want to really show love, the most loving thing you can possibly do, greater love has no one than this, that you lay your life down for your friends. Crap, now I'm getting kind of mind blown. All right. Yeah. yeah. See, I, I see where it comes from. You, once you really let it sit in that, like, oh, wow, like, of course, Jesus does what he says, but, I mean, practice what you teach. That He done exactly that. Mm-hmm. I mean, literally. He humbled himself, not only to become a human, that was way more than enough in itself, but the fact that he would die for people. And just like you said, people thought, you know, the Messiah, not even Jesus, but like the, the Jews think that the Messiah was going to be this great king that came in on the, you know, brilliant white stallion that was just going to, you know, that represented power and, you know, majesty and all these other things that uh, he would rule earth physically. But the fact that he's like, no, you want to really show somebody that you love them, be willing to humble yourself and die for them. Just because thinking that putting them before you. I've been talking about love, so now let's talk about hate. So verse 18, uh, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on the account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So first off, what's the value in honing in on that word hate right after he got done talking about how we're supposed to love? Where's the value in that contrast? I mean, I know that the question practically answers itself, but I mean, that's just something that, that I'd like to hone in on because that obvious contrast is there. To me, this is kind of relevant just because, like, he's first off, you're right. He Like, we just got through talking about the greatest way that you could show love to somebody. You know, you, there, there's no greater way to show love than to die for somebody, to, to die for your friends. But then we think and come back to the reality of what's about to happen. The Pharisees are trying to kill Jesus. Why do you kill somebody? It's because you hate them. I mean, why else would you? Well, yeah, like I'm just going to go kill Tanner today just because eh, it's it's killing season. Like no, like if I want to have that such a, of a strong emotion towards somebody, it's because you have to have actual hatred for them, and they hated Jesus. And Jesus, to me, that throughout this whole scripture, I just expound on that question a little bit. He's kind of trying to prepare them. Because he knows what's in store for them, of course, because he knows all things. But th- I don't think that they realize, at, at least at this point in time, they're going to get persecuted just like he did. And then that will bring us on into later verses about what Tanner gave an answer if he wants to. Yeah, I think the contrast is evident. And I think the reason why he's giving this contrast is because to prepare them, to give them preparation. But I think the contrast comes into complete circle because... The reason why they're hated is because they love, is because that countercultural concept of loving unconditionally and loving 
everyone is kind of not a happy thing to do even within today's standards even with a, a standard of today of tolerance it seems like loving everyone unconditionally is not a, a well-received thing well i mean you just said it like we the current uh culture of tolerance like tolerance isn't love like yeah. the, the whole tolerance thing is a worldly concept to begin with. Yeah. So, and, and I think this is one Jesus is saying here, he's giving the, the good meat and potatoes of, you know, love thy neighbor as thyself and love one another. And, you know, I give myself to, I give myself to the world uh, because I'm the friend, I'm a friend to the world to save it. But because of that, if you follow in his footsteps, just like they were crucifying Jesus, they will also, if we live by the way that Christ says, there will be avenues of persecution. I don't want to say that everyone is going to be persecuted the same because that's not true. Because people in China are persecuted a lot more heavily than those in backwoods Tennessee. Uh, it, it's just because I, and that's one thing you said earlier is that we do have that freedom to worship that I think that we should fight for. And saying, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we have the freedom to worship. And that's one thing I think we need to pray for those that are persecuted. But we need to understand that because if we live, I think one thing we need to understand is that if we live the way that Christ has told us, that we will be hated by the world or at least talked about about the world, uh, be talked about by the world and not be well liked by the world. And so with the gospel itself, it will hurt. It is exclusive to those that trust and believe in God. And verse 19 through 20 uh, it, it, that we read here in John chapter 15 is that this is not his intention to bring division between the world who denies him and those who follow him. It is a byproduct of his grace upon those who believe in him because we are called to be like him, to be like him in love. Because of this love, it is a byproduct, a byproduct of that is hatred. And that's such a... That's such a weird concept. I just I just thought of this just now as you were reading that last uh, point off. That the world is going to hate us, not because God wants them to, but it's just I mean it's a natural it's a natural thing to occur with just how this uh, how this works. So we are called to love Christ, and by doing so, we ensure that we will be hated by some extent to anyone who is not in that group. And mm -hmm. hey, in some Areas like even some people that claim to be in our group, like there are plenty of people out there, um, at least one of which comes to mind that like I, I've heard people that call themselves Christians, but will very freely say, yeah, I prefer the, the God of the Old Testament. Jesus isn't really my style. Like, mm -hmm. I mean, Jesus kind of like right here took away their permission to say that, making it clear if you hate me, then you hate my father. So anyway, back on the original point, it is kind of odd that. Like, Jesus, he's confirming that this hate is going to exist coming from those that don't believe, but we're still called to love them. Like, it's it's almost like love is being used as a weapon in this. Like, he's, he's treating love in a different way than, than people treat love up till that point. Like, he really is flipping everything on its head. Like, is it in Psalms or Proverbs it says that, like, basically treat your enemy with kindness. It's like putting coals on top of their head. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's actually Proverbs. Oh, I, I said Psalms or Proverbs, but... Well, yeah. yeah One sure. of the dudes... I just heard you say Psalms. Yeah. And, yeah. But it, 
he really is like weaponizing love here. Like mm-hmm. go out here and lo- because I mean, we're called to be different. So as Christians, we're going to love differently than a non-Christian in theory, right? Like, so instead of nukes, love. Yeah. Love of nukes. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's get it. Nukes of love. Like we're out here loving aggressively. That sounds like a Beatles song or something. Nukes of love. It's like the episode of SpongeBob with Plankton. You gotta gotta be assertive. We gotta love assertively. But uh, that that is that, that hits different though. Mm-hmm. Now that now that I think of it that way, like Jesus is talking about a different kind of love. That godly love. That that hey that perfect love. Okay, I've said love enough times. Well, it really stands out to me with, within all this. I don't know if you guys are ready to move on or not, but there's one thing that really stood out to me was verse 20. Remember the word that I said unto you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will keep yours also. A lot of Christians feel like if God, you know, if God's going to provide protection at all times, you know, he's not going to let anything happen to us. And I mean... I like I like the idea of that, and I like to agree with that. But I also feel like if that's true, then the persecution wouldn't be possible. I agree with that to an extent. Yeah, and here's here's why I have an issue with that. I mean, if that's also true, like, okay, Christ died, but nobody else had to die for Christ. No, people. If people could kill Christ, I think they can kill his followers. I mean, we look at. I mean, how many people? I have missed died? the question. What was the question? It, it was. It's an idea that people throw out. Um, if Christ is all powerful and can protect us like He says He can, then we can't like we can't face true persecution as far as like death persecution. And I'm trying to say like you know Christ does have that kind of power, but I mean that's not the case because I mean He died. We are no greater than He. We can die for His purpose mm-hmm. as well. We look at all the disciples that did other than John. With like how many other people die? How many people like you brought up in China? How many other people die daily? So are they making that point to say that Christ is did did not exist Here, or did here's not? The, here's crucify? the point of that that, that I'm, I should have reworded this a little bit differently. People will try to say like I shouldn't have to go through persecution. Christ like should protect me. The Christian life is an easy life. No, like Matthew said earlier, he didn't come to make it easier. He came to make it simpler. The Christian life is not a simple life. Christ suffered. You are no better than Christ by any means in any way. So you are by no means by no means. So you are going to suffer. So mm-hmm. why should you not have to suffer at, at least in a worldly, a worldly aspect of like life is not going to be easy. As I like to say, mm-hmm. it's not going to be sunshine, rainbows, and glitter puke. You know, yeah. life is not just all up. You know, it, it's not easy. It's not supposed to be easy. And just because you become a Christian, that doesn't mean make make life easier. Mm-hmm. I think the I think what separates us from any other type of situation have, is how we respond to that situation. Christ never did promise to take us out of that situation, but He showed us how to get through that situation. And He said He would be there with us. Yes, yeah. and that's the promise of the Comforter, and and that's exactly what we're saying seeing here. I mean, He's continuing on with the the motif of I give you a Comforter of love and peace in the time of tribulation, persecution, and trials. So I kind of presented that backwards, but the whole thing was kind of what well, I said at the tail end. I should have put the tail end first. If we look at verse 21 real quick, I like the point that this brings up. But all things, but all these things they will do to you for my namesakes, because they know not him 
who sent me. Jesus is talking about the people that are persecuting him, the persecuting the, his followers, the Christians. They're going to persecute you, not because of you, like not because of Mason Simmons. They're not going to persecute me because of who I am, but they're going to do that because of who I'm following. You know, they don't have trouble with Mason. They have trouble with the name Jesus. And so when people are trying to out here to persecute, you know, all these things, they don't hate me as a person. I mean, some people might, but if I go out to these foreign countries and, you know, I start preaching, you know, Jesus Christ to people, they're not going to kill me just because Mason Simmons showed up. They're going to try to kill me because I started saying the name Jesus. Does that make sense where I'm going? Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, that speaks to the legitimacy of Jesus. He is a threat to those that, that don't love him, that hate him. Um, because this, I mean, this kind of gets into some theological stuff, but I feel like everyone, hmm, how, to, how to approach this? It reminds me of the, the C.S. Lewis quote that I've always butcher every time, so I'm not going to try to quote it, but paraphrase. Like, how do you know that a line is crooked unless you know what a straight line looks like? Like, everyone has, like, that built-in kind of moral compass of sorts that comes from being created in God's image. So everyone, and I know that some people would want to argue about this, but I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it. I say the spicy stuff. Let's do it. Everyone has in the back of their mind, God's real. There, I said it. I said it. I said it. Can't take it back now. So having to accept that God is real, but not subscribing to the religion, not, not actively like, following his word that's gonna that's gonna bring out like a reaction like why why would you get so upset at people believing that you need to love your neighbor unless you're running from it you know what i mean like they're, they're not getting mad at you mason because you're out here loving your neighbor you're out here wanting wanting the world to be better because you believe that that god desires us to be good stewards of this planet and, want, and wants us to to do good works wants us to to bear good fruit why would someone be mad at you for that well, let's look at it in a court way, in a court system analogy. Let's say that that person is a non-believer, and all the evidence of God is laid out before them. And if they're guilty, I'd be kind of pissed off, and I would try to refute that evidence, saying, "Well, that's not real. That's not that's that doesn't exist." But yet, deep down in heart, they that evidence is way stacked up against them pretty heavily. And so, I think that you see this in a lot of. I don't even want to say uh, internet atheists because a lot of the I don't want to say good atheists but the atheists that are kind of actually the dedicated not the caged atheists when I say caged atheists I think the, the ones that are like randomly caged like Aah! I'm coming at you Christians the 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 atheists that have have civil conversations um they actually it was like oh, I can see that they can actually come to Christians or believers that believe in the theism aspects. Like I can see where you're coming from. I just don't agree with it. But yet there are some that attack Christians, the caged atheist, that attack Christians because it's like I hate your evidence and you're stupid for believing it. So there's definitely two types of weighing the evidence against them. And, and and the reason why is because the reason why we're attacked is because we bear the name of Jesus. We're the ones that kind of say this evidence is true towards them or anyone else or towards the world. And if that's the case, then case closed. So in uh, verses 22 through 25, 
uh, it really talks about, I, I, I really, when I read these couple of verses, I remembered, I was thinking of John chapter 3, going all the way back to Nicodemus. Uh, but 22 through 24, Jesus, he explains to the disciples kind of exactly what he told to Nicodemus in chapter uh, 3 of John. I'll read those two verses real quick. So 22, it says, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now they have no excuse for their sin. Uh, the, the one who hates me also hates my father. If I had not done the works among them that no one else has done, they would not have sin. Now they have seen and hated both me and my father. And in John chapter 3, 17 and 18, for God, not, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever doesn't believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. So we got to understand that Jesus didn't come to condemn us. Okay. If Jesus is the ultimate good, which we understand that Jesus is ultimately good because he is God himself, anything apart from him is not good. And anything that is not good is condemned already. And so it really, you kind of see, if you read John chapter three, you kind of already read these, this, this last part of the chapter of like, guess what? Jesus has come to save and a byproduct of that, like we made mention of love, love and hate, a byproduct of something that's good and something that is saving is condemned. Jesus hasn't, Jesus didn't come to condemn, but he came to save. And so in verse 25, it closes out, but this happens. So in this statement, just like in verse, in, in chapter, chapter three, but this happens so that the statement written in their law might be fulfilled. They hated me for no reason. And this prophecy is in Psalm chapter 69, verse four, those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Many are my enemies without cause. Those who seek to destroy me, I am forced to restore what I did not steal. So Jesus is again, fulfilling a prophecy that those that he came to save, there will be those that will come to destroy him because of his love. So capping things off at the end of the chapter, uh, verses 26 through 27 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So the, the end of that chapter, it's talking about the, the Holy Spirit, of course. And just just a quick observation here. As far as I know, Jesus is never like super clear on like who the helper is, is he? Because obviously the people he's speaking to know who God is. Well, some of the people at least. I mean, he's witnessing to plenty of non-believers, I'd imagine. Uh, but there is an understanding of who the, the God of Israel is. And then, of course, Jesus is making the case for himself. So, I mean, obviously he's, he's making it as abundantly clear as humanly possible, especially in this text that we're reading, like who Jesus is. Like what's the function of the son? But then we have the helper, like Jesus just kind of mentions the helper, the, the Holy Spirit in passing. I mean, obviously there needs to be some heads up of what the Holy Spirit is to like understand its legitimacy. Because I mean, if the Holy Spirit just comes out of freaking nowhere and like Jesus gave absolutely no reason for people to believe that like that was going to be a thing, then that, that, that'd be kind of awkward, obviously. So there's got to be some mention, but why do you think Jesus doesn't really like hone in? on the Holy Spirit? That's just, and this is just a genuine curiosity for me. I don't have an answer. I think Jesus only gives the knowledge that they need to know. That he's given the title and the responsibilities of what the Holy Spirit, not explaining how the Holy Spirit came to be or got that job position, basically. He basically said he's a comforter. He's a peace 
He comes to give you peace. He's a helper. And basically, that's all he really... You don't need to know really anything else. Yeah. Well, here's another thing, too, though. They were having a hard enough time... Understanding... Understanding or, Jesus. Yeah. Much yeah. less if Jesus starts throwing out, oh, there's also the Holy Spirit that's going to come down when I leave. Yeah, he, he promises send a comforter, and he's, he also... Another thing, another du- a ti- another duty to that title of the Holy Spirit is that he'll make he'll help you understand these things that I have taught you. Oh, true. That's fair. Yeah. And also, come to think of it, I didn't, I didn't think about this until after I'd asked the question. Um, the Holy Spirit kind of answers all those questions by just existing, really. Because, I mean, you have the Holy Spirit descending upon his disciples like early on in Acts, and like they're over here with like stinking superpowers. Like that's That kind of speaks for itself. I mean, it's like when Jesus performed miracles. Like when people look at him, like they have to at least admit, like, this guy's on to something. I mean, I don't know about the Son of God, but, I mean, he's clearly at least a prophet. Like there's legitimacy there just by, like, the proof of, of seeing. Like seeing is believing. Um so, yeah, I guess the Holy Spirit does kind of, like, legitimize itself um, just by existing, really. I mean, you can't really deny the Holy Spirit when mm-hmm. you have it and you're over here doing stuff that you knew daggum well you couldn't do before. So, yeah, I, I guess, yeah, Holy Spirit speaks for itself, I suppose. Uh, that just that I'll, question just kind of came to mind. The Holy Spirit, to be honest, is the most elusive out of oh, the Trinity. Yeah. Well, you know what? Actually, I, I, I feel like I could contend that just a tad because... I don't know, the divine son concept is something I've been, like, wrapping my head around for the past two or three years. The idea that, like, Jesus wasn't just Jesus, like, the Holy the Holy, the Holy Spirit. The divine son existed before Jesus mm-hmm. hit the earth. Like, that that whole concept, like, that's still something that, like, I I tussle with in my mind every once in a while. Just, even though, I mean, Jesus, Jesus was there at the yeah, creation. exactly. Which, I mean, he makes clear within the New Testament. So, I mean, there's not like there's any denying that, but that just messes with me sometimes. Yeah. It's, for some reason, it's easier in my brain to accept that the Holy Spirit and the Father were doing their thing in creation than it is for me to like easily just sit here and think like, oh, the Divine Son was also there. I mean, obviously He was. Like, I do believe it, but in terms of like sitting here and thinking about it, like the Divine Son hurts my brain more than the Holy Spirit does. If that makes any sense, Mason, you're, you're looking at me real. I mean, it makes sense, real. but it it sets easier with me than. Really, Holy Spirit, and I mean that doesn't. It just makes my brain easy melt. With me, but I think in the physical sense, that's one. a little bit difficult because like, like I accept and believe it. Yeah, but it's just it's weird to think about. Did and you I get that? Did you read 16, 26 and twenty seven? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, uh, that's why we're talking about this, Tanner. Right I know, now. I know. I just didn't, I couldn't, I couldn't remember. <laughs> Well, that covers it for John chapter fifteen. Next week, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the Holy Spirit, so we can confuse each other just a little bit more. But as always, you can find our uh, social media links. They're on the show notes. Just tap it. It'll take you there. It's like magic. And you can see our email there as well. So you can let us know what you think about the Holy Spirit and why we're wrong on everything. Uh, But that'll be next week. So until then, Tanner, give us those magic words. Peace out. (laughs) That was so pathetic. Once more, we're feeling Peace out.